1: I have to extend my thanks to a longtime friend of the Twilight Zone podcast, Andrew Schneider, for stepping in and giving us that wonderful reading of When the Valley Was Still on the last program. I tend to like to read the stories myself these days because I enjoy doing it, but while I don't think anyone really minds this British accent narrating a United States-set story for the most part, There's just something about a story set in the American Civil War that I think needed an American voice to read it, rather than me trying to muddle my way through with the accents. And Andrew kindly stepped forward to be that voice, and I want to give him my sincere thanks. So the highly regarded Twilight Zone writer, George Clayton Johnson, regarded that original story as surrealism, and an elegant piece of writing but will that elegant piece of writing translate to the screen that's going to be the question this time on the twilight zone podcast now in the last episode before that reading andrew actually wrote in and he commented on how season three had had a really great run in terms of quality even the lesser episodes are still very good and some of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes of all time have had their debut here in this season. It's a good life, a game of pool, the midnight sun, all classics. And then we come to tonight's episode and all of a sudden, Twilight Zone's most famous commentators go quiet. Mark Zickrey in the Twilight Zone companion gives it a generally negative single paragraph review. Douglas Brodie in Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone doesn't even include it, despite having a section devoted to episodes concerning the devil. Things are looking up with Martin Graham's Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. He at least gives us a bit more in the way of trivia. But even in that hefty book, It's not as most comprehensive of entries. So what is it about this episode that makes the Twilight Zone commentators freeze? Has this great season three run come to an end? And without their input, will we have much left to mull over when we discuss this episode? Well, let's find out when we take a trip to the Still Valley.
0: The time is 1863, the place, the state of Virginia. The event is a mass bloodletting known as the Civil War. A tragic moment in time when a nation was split into two fragments, each fragment deeming itself a nation.
1: First broadcast on November 24, 1961. Written by Rod Serling, but based on a short story by Manly Wade Wellman and directed by James Sheldon. So, back into the director's chair once again after his triumph with It's a Good Life. This is his second to last Twilight Zone until we see him later in the season for I Sing the Body Electric. So, the moment that the theme music finishes, Rod Sterling goes straight into his opening narration, and immediately we have what may be some stock footage of a landscape, and as the camera pans across, the picture freezes on that landscape. It looks a little awkward and, dare I say it, a little cheap. And I wonder whether it's actually supposed to feed into the story, though, that when the camera freezes like that, it was because a group of the Union soldiers, or Yanks as they call them, were frozen. Because when we meet our first couple of characters, One of them, named Paradine, says that he heard something, but he doesn't hear it anymore. Perhaps, but what happens next is we meet those two soldiers. Paradine and Dogger, two confederate soldiers who have set up camp.
0: What's the idea, Paradine? The idea is, Dogger, you ain't a right arm to me or left arm. You're just some extra baggage that breathes hard and splits my rations. You figure you will shape up by the end of the war? I can't help it! It used to... It used to be I'd never give it any thought. It used to be like it was some kind of game we was playing like kids. King of the mountain. hide and go seat. Blind man's buff. But ain't that way anymore, Paradine. I've seen too much of this business.
1: If you remember Andrew's reading in the last episode, the story is more or less the same, apart from a couple of differences. One of which is this aspect to the character of Dogger, a soldier who has seen too much. An element that, of course, Rod Sailing would bring to a story like this. It is something we've come to know of Rod Sailing, We've spoken about it often that those war years did have a big effect on him. Amy Ball Johnson's book, Unknown Sailing* is probably one of the best books out there to really see him pouring his post-war pain out onto the page. And of course, Anne Sailing's book, as I knew him, has a lot of details about that too. Now I'm gonna read you a page from Amy's book and not because it directly Relates to this story as such, because of course, this was written by Manly Wade Wellman originally. But Sailing does bring this aspect to it the fact that these people just see far too much and how it affects them. And she documents how Sailing wrote this piece of fiction, but it was heavily influenced by what actually happened. And Sailing is a character actually in it, and he's pouring himself out onto the page. And she writes, Sailing's character watches the planes drop by parachute, the badly needed crates of cargo containing food, bandages and ammunition. As the planes make a second pass, they start to make drops without chutes and heavy crates unshooted were falling in clusters from the sky. 50 pound boxes of K rations, a hundred or more of them hurtling earthward. The men, realising the danger, take cover. Etherson tries to pull Levy down into a foxhole, but Levy remains standing, transfixed by the crates dropping his long-awaited meal. Etherson, no longer hearing the wooden boxes hit the ground, emerges from his foxhole, yelling Levy's first name, Mel. Then he sees the horror of Levy's head, rested a few feet from the rest of his body. And that one end of the ration crate sticking up crazily was a lot redder than Lady mud. The squad carries Levy's head and body to the makeshift cemetery on a stretcher made from a rain poncho and poles. Sailing assembles a Star of David made of twigs and Etherson writes the eulogy. Rest in peace Mel, too bad you missed out on the chow. That happening is a very real aspect of Rod Sailing's life, and it wasn't even in a combat situation. But back in our story, Paradine and Dogger's mission is to scout out the local town because they're expecting a group of Union soldiers there. They have to go and check on them, then report back. But again, we're shown that still shot of the town and the sound of the Union soldiers stops abruptly. Now this clearing where they sat off before going into the town is quite clearly a set. It's not actually outside the location. It was filmed at Hal Road Studios in Culver City, California. And it looks very artificial. Sometimes that's okay, but other times it's not. But it's interesting that whenever I prepare for the Twilight Zone podcast, the first thing I'll do is watch the episode on Blu-ray on a big screen, just to let it work its magic. No notes, no analysis, just sit back and let the episode do its thing. Then when I prepare the episode, I'll have it on there too in the background in standard definition, and this is an occasion where the high definition of the Blu-rays really exposes the falseness of the backdrop, because in the lower definition version, Sure you know you can look and see that it's a set but if you're just casually watching it it's a lot less obvious overall. So I'd imagine back in the day watching this on an old television set it really wouldn't have made a difference. I reckon I I
0: reckon I better get down there and take a close look. Let's let's pull out I I don't like it. You know they're in there you heard them. All right, now, we found out what we had to find out. The Yankees are in the valley, all right. So we go back and report. Now, what's the point in going down there? The point is we got to count their heads, their horses, and their guns. We got to get a look at their regimental number. Got enough point for you, Mr. Doger? I don't care. I just don't care anymore. I only got one big mission left, and that's to stay alive. All right, I see. We go down in that valley. And when and, and we wave a shirt and throw down our car beans. Mr. Doger. I extend my sympathy so long as your yellow eats at your insides. But when it crawls into my bivouac and tries to climb up on my horse, I withdraw my sympathy and give you the back of my hand.
1: So before Paradine goes down into the town, let's meet his partner Dogger, played by Ben Cooper. Ben would have been almost 30 at this point and had been appearing on screen for about 12 years. He certainly did his fair share of Western TV shows with things like Bonanza and Wagon Train. Not so much one of those interesting lived-in faces that suggests that they've been living the hard Western life. And without the moustache that he wears in this episode, he's one of those guys who is almost too pretty to believe he's ever had to live that life. Which maybe is the point here that the grizzled Paradine is the one who's dealing with the war a lot better and it's the young fresh faced dogger who is struggling now in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia Stephen J Rubin documents some comments made by Cooper he says I had the joy of doing one of the Twilight Zones directed by Jim Sheldon whom I'd met on Broadway Jim always made actors comfortable you felt safe working with him He wasn't going to ask you to do something where you were going to wind up looking like an idiot or a jerk or whatever. And Gary Merrill and I had done a few hundred radio shows together in the 1940s in New York. And Vaughn Taylor was the old man in it. The neat thing about it was that the show came out exceedingly well, I thought. And Jim helped me work with Gary Merrill, who was a very intense actor. And the temptation was to come on as strong as he did. And Jim didn't want me to do that. He wanted there to be more of a balance between the characters. And all those atmosphere people who had to stand still in the middle of the street. They were just wonderful. Because that was not easy to do. It was just a grand experience. It literally was an honor to be hired to do a Twilight Zone. And you felt an obligation to live up to the reputation that the show had. So some really nice words there from Ben Cooper in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. And he's fine in this episode, you know, I don't think it's a particularly standout part. He's there to fill a role in the story and he does it just fine. And Ben would go on to work steadily, but not particularly prolifically until the mid-90s. Now we are about five minutes into the episode by now and we have had some opening narration. But Serling comes back to give us just a bit more.
0: This is Joseph Paradine, Confederate Cavalry, as he heads down toward a small town in the middle of a valley. But very shortly, Joseph Paradine will make contact with the enemy. He will also make contact with an outpost not found on a military map, an outpost called the Twilight Zone.
1: Now, when Rod Sailing wrote the script, he sent it off to what is called the deforest research group and martin grams jr documents this in unlocking the door to a television classic and what they do is do an authenticity check and i'll give you one example i won't go through the whole list but even things as small as this in the beginning of the script when paradine and dogger exchange words dogger proposed they wave an undershirt but deforest suggested the line be changed to wear a shirt, since an undershirt was not a common article of clothing during the time period. Sailing made the change. And then Martin Grahams Jr. goes on to document a few more. So it's nice that Sailing did that, you know, he was concerned with authenticity. But when Paradine goes into the town, in contrast to the fake-looking set of the opening... This town setting is much better, it's lot 3 at MGM Studios, and it's a good looking western town set. And when he does get into town, much to Paradine's surprise, but not our surprise because we've heard the short story on the last episode, he finds that there are several Union soldiers there, seemingly frozen in time. And we spend a few minutes with him as he walks around, speaking to them. But the cause of this is an old man called Teague, played by Vaughn Taylor. Vaughn Taylor would have been about 50 or 51 by this point, but he's quite clearly aged up in this. The makeup just seems to be caked on his face and he's got these lines drawn to sort of simulate crow's feet and that kind of thing. Really trying to emphasise that. Now there's nothing of particular note on his resume to me. He seemed to be a good, dependable character actor who would be used a lot for things like judges or bankers, but he is a Twilight Zone regular to the tune of five episodes. We saw him first in Time Enough at Last as Mr. Carsville, and Still Valley is his second episode. And then he goes on to I Sing the Body Electric, the incredible world of Horace Ford, and the self-improvement of Salvador Ross. So with a combination of the overdone makeup and the quite broad performance, I do think the episode veers a little into silliness here. Now I get what they're going for, you know, this crazy old witch man. Is he actually a witch or is he just crazy? But it is slightly distracting. But here he is with his explanation for what's really going on.
0: This here's what done it. see a book. That wasn't bright of you. That wasn't bright of you at all. Listen, old man, you may be harmless enough, but I got no time to fiddle around with black magic or any other old men's games. Games? Games, you call it? There in front of you stands the enemy, not even a twitch. not even a moving eyeball. Well... (laughs) Ye soldier conjured here in the name of the Prince of Darkness, ye shall remain silent and... Now listen, old man! (laughs) How about it now, Johnny Reb? You believe me? I reckon you believe me now, beans you can't move a muscle. Beans you can't speak even a word out loud. you're just gonna have to stand there. And listen to listen to me speak at you.
1: Teague freezes paradigm and now he and the audience are convinced that what this crazy old man says is true. So while he's frozen in time, let's rifle through his pockets and see what we can find out about the actor who plays Paradigm, Gary Merrill. Now, he's only actually four years younger than Vaughn Taylor, the supposed old man. And in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia, Stephen J. Rubin says that Cliff Robertson was actually trying to rearrange the opening week of a play that he was going to star in so he could play Paradigm. But he couldn't do it, so they moved on to Gary Merrill. There's a quote from his co-star Ben Cooper in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and it goes, I was in awe of Gary Merrill at the time. Merrill was a veteran. He was on the set on time, he knew his lines and he knew how to overplay his role. I assume that Merrill researched the subject, and Civil War scouts were like that, because of the tasks they had to perform. Jim, the director, is a good friend of mine, We had been friends for years. Jim told me aside that I was to play my role down a bit so Gary Merrill would shine on stage. Now again, as I look down his list of credits, I'm sure there are some credits on there that mean something to some people but just aren't known to me. But he seems to be another dependable character actor and does he shine in this like Ben Cooper wanted him to? You know, I think he's fine in this. I don't think there's anything wrong in his performance. It's good, but I think here perhaps lies part of a general feeling of being maybe a little underwhelmed with this episode. Our three main actors are dependable character actors, but I'm not sure anyone is really shining as such or raising this material up beyond what it is. There's not a performance among them where you can say that anyone is doing anything particularly interesting or something that really hits you on some level. And the exchanges between the actors, which so often really crackle when Sailing writes them, aren't really given us anything that great either. It's, it's not bad, it's just fine. So this old man Teague introduced us to this book If you remember back to the original story last time, it's a little different in the episode. What we get here is just a big book with witchcraft written on it in huge letters. But the original story describes it like this. He reached under his veil of a beard, apparently fumbling in the bosom of his ruined shirt, his brown old fork of a hand produced a dingy book bound in grey paper. This does it, he said. Paradine looked at the front cover. It bore the woodcut of an owl against a round moon. The title was in black capitals. John George Hoffman's Powows," or Long Lost Friend. Now it turns out that this is actually a real book. And if you look up on Wikipedia, It says, John George Hoffman, who was active between 1802 and 1846, was a German-American printer, bookseller and compiler of collections of herbal remedies, magic healings and charms. He immigrated to the USA from Germany in 1802, settled in the area around Reading, Pennsylvania, in the Pennsylvania Dutch community, where he printed and sold broadsides, chapbooks, and books, and practiced and instructed in the arts of folk magic and folk religion, which became known as powwow. Hoffman's best known work is in the collection of prayers and recipes for folk healing titled Powwows or The Lost Friend, published in German in 1820 as The Long Hidden Friend. And in two English translations, the first in 1846 in a rather crude translation by Hoffman himself, called The Long-Secreted Friend, or A True and Christian Information for Everybody, and the second, in 1856, by a different and more fluent translator, and was called The Long-Lost Friend, A Collection of Mysterious and Invaluable Arts and Remedies for a Man, as well as animals. The name Pow was only added to the book in late 19th century reprints in the wake of the sudden popularity of spiritualism in the United States in which Indian spirit guides were frequently seen during seances. So I can see why they didn't go with that title on the book. Probably a bit cryptic for an episode of the Twilight Zone. You needed something a bit simpler, a little more straightforward. So Witchcraft is fine. I I don't particularly like the, the book itself that much though. Maybe it's actually quite accurate, I don't know. Maybe they've done some research on that. But just this huge book with Witchcraft written on the front that way. It just seems a little on the nose, you know. All it needed to be was a, an old looking book the fact of what it is you know is said by the characters so anyway a small detail now as you'll recall in the short story Paradine makes his decision at about this point that he'll not do anything in the name of the devil but he will rather behead teague and burn the book perhaps a little graphic for the twilight zone so Sailing had to tackle it in another way. Instead, Paradine takes the book with him, with the thought that he might actually use it. And then he tries to.
0: Satan. Satan, I call upon you. And in so doing, I revoke the name of... Go on, Joe, read it calls upon us to revoke the name of God. Leave it be, Dogger. You said yourself it's the only thing we got left. He's right, Paradine. God help us. That is all we have left. What do we call them? Damn Yankers, don't we, Lieutenant? That's the phrase, ain't it? Damn Yanks. If I read aloud from this book, It'll be the Confederacy that's dead. <laughs> it's that, Booker, it's the end. Then let it be the end.
1: When I try to sum this episode up, I'm reminded of how recently in Death's Head Revisited, Becker commented to Lutzer that he wasn't a soldier. And I theorized that Sailing, who was a soldier, might take exception to the likes of Lutzer, a Nazi, hiding behind the excuse that he did what he did because he was a soldier. Sailing did come out of the war a changed man, but there was still this appreciation and respect for soldiers and their sacrifices. He seemed to believe in a certain nobility in that role. And these sacrifices go beyond just the ultimate sacrifice that some soldiers sadly have to make, but the sacrifices of parts of themselves they have to do things that we ordinarily don't want to do, take the lives of other human beings. And even when the cause is a just one, there is still an internal adjustment that needs to be made to be able to do that. So I do think that Sailing still believed in the nobility of the soldier and a certain type of code, a line that they won't cross. And in this story, It's that they still have to be able to stand before their God and say that, yes, they took lives, but they had a genuine belief that they were doing it for the right reasons. Now, I don't really know my Civil War history. The majority of the listeners to this show are in the United States, so I won't insult you with some Wikipedia breakdown of what it's all about because I'm sure you know more about it than I can bring you with a small amount of research. And I don't know what Rod Sailing's thoughts on the Civil War were either. I don't have that information. But to me, I feel that the main point of this is to show that the soldier, the true soldier, isn't just some killer let loose on a battlefield to bring down hell on their enemies. That even when they've had to break the Sixth Commandment by taking a life, there's still some level of principle there. level of fairness and they still have to be able to stand before their god in the belief that what they've done was just so there still needs to be that distinction between a soldier and someone who is just a killer so i think this is good ground for the twilight zone to cover to examine to talk about this line that shouldn't be crossed even in war because everyone's ideas of where that line is are gonna be different. Today we have the chemical weapons convention that was implemented to stop the use of chemical weapons in warfare. To shoot someone is tolerated. To subject them to a horrific death via chemicals isn't. So although the short story and the episode very much show us that Paradine won't use the book because he doesn't wanna go against God's name, If you're not a particularly religious person, I still think there's a general message here about that decency in a wartime situation. I don't think we necessarily need religion to discuss that aspect of it. Now, it would be interesting to get a soldier's perspective on this one, and I know at least one who listens, so anyone who wants to comment on it, please do. But while I kind of like this conclusion, this, examination of that soldier's code the episode itself does fall a little flat for me which is a shame because I like the short story and I like this element of examining where that line is that shouldn't be crossed if it falls down to me it's partially in its presentation like I said earlier the actors are generally fine We do have that quite broad performance of Teague in the middle, which may be elevated to kind of silliness, but no one really shines in it. I don't think anyone's bad in it, but there's no one really sort of gripping me and pulling me in. And there's nothing to any of it really that raises the material beyond just being okay. Could it be that the story is better on the page or read aloud than adapted? possibly. I think sailing does do his best to add a little more to it with the soldiers fatigue in the beginning but then the scene where Paradine spent two or three minutes talking to frozen soldiers just kind of brings everything to a halt. It's certainly not terrible and as I've said often in the context of a Twilight Zone marathon it's fine you can watch it and the overall thing is perfectly entertaining but for me it perhaps has halted. Season 3's stellar run. Now in the original script. Sailing's closer narration. Was a little different. And it goes like this. In a time to come during what will be. Joseph Paradine's old and. Garrulous years. He'll tell anyone willing to listen. That the civil war wasn't lost at. Antietam or Gettysburg. Rather he'll insist. The confederacy was buried. In a little valley hammered called Chanao. People will probably laugh or pity him when he insists that the South lost a war because they refused a certain alliance. But we need neither laugh nor pity because we know the nature of that alliance. Such alliances are the norm rather than the exception in the Twilight
0: Zone. On the following morning, Sergeant Paradine and the rest of these men were moved up north to a little town in Pennsylvania, an obscure little place where a battle was brewing, a town called Gettysburg. And this one was fought without the help of the devil. Small historical note not to be found in any known books, but part of the records in The Twilight Zone.
1: Now, before we go into our emails. I just want to mention that The Twilight Zone is coming to London in a stage play at the Almeida Theatre, and it's playing through December and January. So it starts in December, and you can go to their website, the Almeida Theatre, and buy tickets there. Now, I'm actually going to be going on the 14th of December, and I can't wait. You know, it's So rare that we get anything Twilight Zone here in England. As I've said often, it's not even on the TV anymore. So so to have this event here, I think is really quite special. So I'm going to be going, and hopefully a lot of people out there will be going too. So if you want to check it out, go to almeda.co.uk, and that's spelled A-L-M-E-I-D-A. .co.uk and you can get your tickets there. So I'm going to go. I'm going to report back to all of you with an episode about what it's actually like. You know, there's a lot of questions at the moment. What's it going to be like? How are they going to stage this? What stories are they going to do? Well, we'll come to you with a full review. So keep your ears open. But even better, if you can go then go, and it would be great to see you there. Okay, so let's check out some emails unsubmitted for your approval. long time friend of the show Grace sent an email she said hey Tom this is Grace I wanted to send you some thoughts on the episode Midnight Sun. You mentioned about noticing the actors sweat a bit in the episode The Game of Pool and boy the sweat is almost its own character in this one. The episode is one that I have a very strong reaction to What with global warming and the 3 degrees celsius threshold being all it takes to be the point of no return with the planet atmosphere. This episode is far closer to reality than to science fiction. A small personal note about myself. I've never seen snow. I've never had it fall on my face. Made a snowman. Had a white Christmas. It's something I've never experienced. I grew up on the coast of California then moved to Florida in my late teens, where I live now. It's hot and sticky and heavy, and air conditioners are not luxury items here. They really are a means for survival sometimes. The idea of it being as hot as this or worse everywhere is truly frightening for me. The performances in this show are just incredible. The desperation is thoroughly palpable. You can feel the thirst, the oppressive sun rays, The utter hopelessness of the situation. What Rod Sailing said about civilization needing to remain civilized in order to survive is put to an ultimate and primal test here. This is an incredible episode. One of the best in my opinion. After watching this, a tall glass of water sounds so good right now. Well thank you Grace. Wow that blows my mind, someone who's never seen snow before. Well, we get a little bit of everything here in England, but um, yeah, good thoughts, Grace. You know, there is a kind of, I suppose, environmental aspect to it that I never really covered, but it is quite frightening to think that, that maybe it is closer to reality than science fiction. Thank you, Grace. Okay, friend of the show, Adam, sends one. He says, wow, incredible job with Midnight Sun. This is one of those episodes that I found fine but never gave much thought to. Hearing your analysis and breakdown of it caused me to see it completely differently. I disagree that the scenes that were cut out didn't add much to the story. Hearing you read them is what made me realise how how truly terrifying the concept of the episode is. It added a real sense of dread of the reality of the situation when faced with the day-to-day routine while preparing for the inevitable. When the police disbanded and the officer gave over his gun, I can't imagine how helpless and scared one would feel. Without getting too political, it's also a perfect analogy for the global climate change we face today. If disaster is inevitable, how long does one stay out and go about their daily routine? Anyway, keep up the great work, and I look forward to the next one, and that is from Adam. I can see what you're saying about those scenes Adam, thank you for your email, I I think personally though for me it, it sort of ties into that thing I said about the beginning where part of me almost wishes they'd went silent with this one you know because it was more about the kind of imagery and not so much the words you know I, I got enough of a flavour of what was going on in the outside world to uh, to get that impression from what they did put in but you know, I, I appreciate both their uh, viewpoints on that. So thank you, Adam. Just a quick one from Derek. He says, in one of your teasy episodes, you expressed an interest in how we listen. I tend to listen while walking the dog at 10 p.m. It's the American South in a small town built into quite a dense forest. There are few street lamps There are also deer. The experience would be creepy were it not for my podcast pal. Mildly recounting a scary television show made before I was born. I really appreciate your show. Well, I really appreciate your email, Derek. Thank you. You know, it is a a fascinating subject for me. I'm not going to lie. It still blows my mind that there are people in the US, in Canada, maybe in other parts of the world as well, uh, checking out me sitting here in Liverpool talking about this great American institution so so yeah you know how people consume it is is really interesting to me as well but also the acceptance of people in America of this Brit tackling your your great show I I always appreciate that so thank you Derek now the Midnight Sun did bring out a lot of old friends of the show and this one is another one a good friend of the show and a good supporter on Patreon. she says hi Tom I just listened to your podcast about one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes Midnight Sun. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who loves that episode. The acting and directing are superb. It's one episode that makes you wonder what you would do in that situation. And how long you would hold out. When there clearly is no hope. We're so used to movies and TV shows where a hero swoops in. At the last minute and rescues everyone. But of course. Here there is no hope of that. The only real life parallels I can think of. Or people facing a terminal illness. Although climate change could be considered a slow motion version of this story. The other thing I wonder about is how long my humanity would hold out in conditions like this. Norma is an absolutely kind and compassionate person. But even she has a moment of weakness when describing the woman in the store who was crying and asking for help. The implication being that even Norma didn't stop to help her. Compare her character to those in The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, where people almost immediately panic and attack each other for far less reason than Norma had. I suppose no one really knows how they would respond until something cataclysmic happens. As always, thanks for the amazing podcast. You always make me think. Well, thank you, Anne. Like you said, Sailing sets out his stall early, doesn't he? You know, these people have been handed a death sentence so it's so inevitable from the get-go but how would we respond when something cataclysmic happens you know I hope we never find out but um you know sadly it's a factor of life but thank you for your email and I always appreciate your support thank you so there we go that is our episode on Still Valley thanks once again to Andrew for reading a story that I could never have read if you want to get in touch the email is tom at the Podcast.com. on twitter it's twilightzonenet on facebook it's facebook.com slash twilightzonepodcast and if you want to support the show on patreon and get some extra bonus content for only one or two bucks a month then go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. So with me heading to London to watch the Twilight Zone play on the 14th of December, that may be your next episode, but I may be able to cram one in before then. So just in case I do, let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's next.
0: And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on the Twilight Zone, we once again borrow the talents of Mr. Charles Beaumont who's written a script especially for us called The Jungle. Now, this is designed for the reasonably impressionable amongst you who find nothing to laugh about when somebody mentions the words black magic. Mr. John Daner stars in another small excursion into the darker regions of the imagination. Next week, The Jungle.